to be honest, like in this series, I've gotten a little nostalgic. Uh, I'm a little bit of a nerd. I'm a little bit of a geek. Uh, and I love superheroes. And I've always loved superheroes. And so I was thinking back to, as a child and just my experience with superheroes. And, and I realized I've gone through a little bit of a tra- transition, okay? Uh, when I was young, DC Comics uh, were the superheroes that you would see in the movie theater. And when I was young, it was in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, you had the Superman movies, and then you had Batman come out. Well, things are kind of a, a little bit different now, and Marvel's kind of taken over. Uh, and so all, everything's about Captain America or Spider-Man or Iron Man or anything like that. And, and what I realized is, is that Marvel did something that was really genius. Marvel did something that was really, really smart in how they captured the minds of everyone when they went to the movie theaters. What Marvel did was they capitalized on the end credit scene. And so what happens is, is you know, the movie ends and the credits go... I don't know if they go from the top to the bottom or the bottom to the top. I, know, I don't remember. But they are going there. And people usually leave at that point. They don't stay around to, to watch the credits. Not with Marvel movies. Everyone stays around for the end of the Marvel movie. And they wait till the end of the credits because there's an extra scene at the end of the credits. In fact, oftentimes that end credit scene was what people looked forward to much more. They would actually not even be looking forward to the movie. They just want to see the, the end credit scene. And it was just this this crazy phenomenon that occurred. And and the reason it occurred, the reason that these were so successful was that it was at the end credit scene that you learned why that hero's story was part of a much bigger story. It was in the end credit scene that you were revealed and you were able to connect the dots and you learned that this person's story that you had just watched was actually a part of a much bigger story and the bigger story was what you were really interested in and the bigger story was the one with the more impact. That's basically why we're doing our series on heroes. It's important to learn about these Old Testament characters. It's important to learn about these Old Testament stories. But the truth of the matter is, is that their stories are part of a much bigger story. And their stories points to the hero of heroes, Jesus, and his story. And so we're going to go and learn about another hero today. And we're going to jump back into the book of Judges. We looked at the book of Judges a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Gideon. And I just want to remind you of the cycle that happens in the book of Judges. Here's what happens in the book of Judges over and over and over and over again. The people of Israel reject God. They do evil in the sight of God. And what ends up happening is that they they turn away from him. They begin to worship different idols, different false gods, all of these things. And because they do evil in God's eyes, because they reject God, God allows them to go through this hardship. He allows them to go through this difficulty. He allows them to either be uh, conquered or oppressed by different people. And when they go through this hardship, they suddenly wake up and they realize we need God. And they cry out to God, God, help us. And God sends a deliverer in the form of these judges to deliver them from this hardship and they return to God. And then it's like wash, rinse, and repeat, and it happens again. Today we're going to be learning about a judge named Deborah. And Deborah's story is a little bit different from the rest of the judges. The first thing that you need to know about Deborah's story is that it's actually told twice. It's told in chapter 4 and it's told in chapter 5. 
What happens in chapter four is it's told in a prose account. It basically just tells you what happened. It tells you the events of what occurs. In chapter five, it's told in the form of a song, in the form of a poem. And this was common during that time. The Israelites lived in the ancient Near East culture. And in that culture, it was common for those stories to be told in two ways. It would be told in a prose account. Here's what happened. And it would be told in a poetic account. And what happens in those prose and poetic accounts is that they were different genres, but they were for different purposes. In the prose account, the, the, the person who was hearing the story or reading the story was invited to experience the events of the story. They were invited to experience uh, who was involved, what happened, what were the actions that took place. In the poetic account, they were invited to experience the emotions of the story, uh, the celebration, the laments, the feelings. And so what happens is, is this is told in two accounts. That's what happens in the book of Deborah. And Deborah is unlike all the other judges. The first thing we need to understand is that Deborah is unlike the other judges because she's a woman. She's the only woman that's a judge in the book of Judges. But that's not the only reason that she's different. Deborah enters into the story as a literal judge. What happens when we are introduced to Deborah is she's holding court. She's actually leading with with wisdom and justice. And so she's actually leading, as we are introduced to her, as a literal judge. And this is different from the other judges. And Deborah, different from the other judges, is not a warrior. Not once in the story does she lift up a weapon to deliver the people, which is very different from the rest of the judges because Deborah is not a warrior, she's a prophet. She's a prophet. And what she does is she is the mouthpiece of God. She speaks on behalf of God. And this is very important to remember as we jump into the story of Deborah. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes. Do you get like the frustration here? It's it's just, it's it's amazing. When you read the Bible sometimes, just the emotions. Again! The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Hagayim, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinom, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give them into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. My youngest child, Justice, is turning 13 tomorrow. 
13. How did that happen? How did they get old and yet I stayed so young? It's amazing. And Justice is turning 13 tomorrow. And what you need to know about Justice is Justice is, he's my negotiator. He likes to negotiate. And what he ends up doing at times, and here's how it's going. I'm going to give you a hypothetical situation, but this is kind of like a, a good example of how it went. I'll go to Justice and I'll say, Justice, go out into the yard and pick up the sticks because we have to mow the lawn. And this is what will happen. Hey, Dad, let me tell you how this is going to go. Here's what we're going to do, Dad. Here's what we're going to do, okay? Here's what we're going to do. I don't know why he does this. I think he gets it from me. He goes, hey, here's what we're going to do, Dad. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go out and pick up those sticks. And what you're going to do is, you're going to give me a dollar for a stick. (laughs) And I look at him with a look, and he says, you know what? I could tell by your face. I could tell by your face. You are someone who likes a bargain. (laughs) I'll tell you what I'll do, Dad. Forget the dollar a stick. $20 for the whole bunch. What are you saying? And I look at him and, are you kidding me? You are being ridiculous. You cannot negotiate with me. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to go out there and you're going to pick up the sticks and then you're going to mow the lawns. (laughs) It's ridiculous, right? What what is he doing? He goes and he makes this negotiation with me after I tell him what to do. Why is it ridiculous? Why are you chuckling? Why are you laughing? Because he doesn't have the authority to negotiate with me. He's the child. I'm the parent. He has no legs to stand on in this negotiation. He just needs to obey. We get a ridiculous negotiation in the passage we just read. Again, look at verse 8. What happens? Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. All right, hold on. She had just said that the Lord commands you to go and do this. And Barak enters into this ridiculous negotiation. And what's interesting about Barak is he, he kind of gets a bad rap at times. And I, I see people read this chapter, and what they do is they arrive to this conclusion. They say, man, Barak was just a wimp. He was just a wimp. He was a scaredy cat. He wasn't going to go and do anything unless he had Deborah there. That's not accurate. That's not accurate. The problem isn't that he was asking Deborah to go with him. Actually, that was very normal in that culture. Again, in the ancient Near East where the Israelites were, it was normal for the prophet or the prophetess to go into battle with them because what is symbolized was that God, their God, was with them in battle. It wasn't a bad thing that he was asking for Deborah to be there. And then some people I've heard say, well, you know what it is? It's he must have bad faith. He has pretty weak faith. Because Deborah's telling him something, and it's like, well, I'm not sure I can believe you. Here's how I know if I can believe you if you come out to battle with me. That's inaccurate as well. And the reason we know it's inaccurate is by actually looking at the Bible. In the book of Hebrews, which is in the second part of the Bible in the New Testament, if you were to go into the book of Hebrews, there's a chapter in there where we get this hall of fame for people who have great faith. You know who's in that hall of fame? Barak. Barak's in that hall of fame. It's not that he had weak faith. So what was the problem here? It was okay for him to ask for Deborah to be there. What was the problem? He never made a request. He never made a request. He never asked Deborah. He negotiated. He negotiated. And when you negotiate, what you do is you assume that you are on the same level playing field as the one you're negotiating with. And remember when I told you that Deborah was a prophet, that she was the mouthpiece for God? and that that was important, 
what Barak is doing in this negotiation is actually challenging her authority as the mouthpiece of God. And in reality, he's not negotiating with Deborah. He's negotiating with God. But he doesn't have the authority to negotiate with God. But we do the same thing, though, don't we? I mean, I don't know about you, but I do the same thing sometimes. What ends up happening is I'll pray prayers like this. I'm like, God, I'll do this. But here's what you need to do. I'll do this, but I need you to do this as well. Or I'll do this if you do this. And I begin to have this negotiation with God, but the problem is I don't have the right to negotiate with God. I don't have the authority to negotiate with God. God is God. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. Our response to God is obedience, not negotiation. But what happens? What happens? He enters into this negotiation, and the consequence is that he loses the glory, the honor of defeating Cicero, that it would go to a woman. That's huge. That's a big loss. In that culture, it's a very honor-driven culture. That is a big loss. So what does he do? He obeys. He obeys, and he actually goes into battle. He humbles himself and actually goes into battle, and God redeems the story of Barak, and we end up reading about him in the book of Hebrews. It's huge. But what about the rest of the story? What happens? What happens in the rest of the story of Deborah? What about the battle? Because we have this ridiculous negotiation, but what happens after that? Well, let's go back into the story. Starting at verse 11 of chapter 4. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim, near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor and with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Just then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg to his temple, dead. This is where we move from PG-13 to rated R. And just a little bit of a, a side note. Uh, first of all, I'm never going camping with Jael. It's not happening. But actually, stories like this actually rub people the wrong way sometimes. Stories like this, when people are just getting involved uh, with the Bible, this rub, rubs them the wrong way. And they're like, what in the world? What, what kind of God allows this? Why, why would I look to a God who, who does this? Well, I think we need to just pause for a second and understand 
that we cannot confuse the descriptive parts of the Bible with the prescriptive parts of the Bible. Why is this in the Bible? Because it happened. This event is just being described in the chapter. It's not being prescribed. It's not being prescribed. And the reality is, is that uh, our world throughout history, our uh, humanity is just one big mess. And this is a time of war. There are atrocities that happen in war. This is not something that is being prescribed. It's just something that's being described. And what God does is he enters into our mess and he uses our mess to bring about redemption. And what we have here is that God uses his mess to bring about deliverance, but there's a plot twist that happens. There's a plot twist that happens. And there's a plot twist that happens all over the place in the book of Deborah. You see, it would be very logical, it would be very logical to think that when Deborah makes her pronouncement that a woman would receive glory, that we would think, what? If you were reading for this for the first time, what would you think? That Deborah was the woman. That she was going to be the one who got the glory. But there's a plot twist that happens. You ever read a book or you ever watch a movie where you think you know what's about to happen and then this plot twist happens and then you're like, whoa, where did that come from? I remember a book that I was reading. It was uh, by an author named Ted Decker. Actually, it was a book that I got from the church library. If you didn't know we have a church library, there's one here. It's open to the public Sundays and Wednesdays and Thursday mornings. Go and check it out. But I was reading this book and I, and I got to the point and there's this point towards the end. And I was like, ah, he called it. I knew that's where you were going, Ted. I got it. Turn the page, plot twist. I was like, I didn't see that coming. I literally said it out loud, audibly. I was like, I did not see that coming. You ever get that kind of plot twist? This is what happens here. It's an unexpected plot twist. And the initial twist in the story was that Deborah's pronouncement. That doesn't happen in any of the other uh, stories of the judges. It never happens that uh, a woman was going to be the one who receives the honor for the defeat of the enemy. And then we get the other twist. It's not Deborah. It's not the actual judge. It's Jael with her mallet. And what's interesting about that is that Jael would have known how to use this mallet and this peg because in that culture, it was the woman who set up the tent. So everything is orchestrated in a way to allow for this plot twist. But we need to understand just how crazy this story really is. Look at what we just read. Jael is a, a woman who's part of a people who are not against Sisera. There's a battle going on. Jael is part of the allies for Sisera. Her family, her husband is part of the allies for Sisera. She's not the one who's in the fight. And it is her, it is Jael, who ends, about, ends up bringing this deliverance by defeating Sisera. This makes no sense. If this was a movie, it would get a lot of Rotten Tomatoes. Because if you were watching, you'd be like, where did, where did that come from? Where, 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 how did that happen? It is an unexpected plot twist. And it is deliverance from this unexpected source. And it is the way that God orchestrates his story. Because it's a story that has a ridiculous negotiation that takes an unexpected plot twist. But plot twists are not there for the point of just a plot twist. They reveal something to us. If you were to uh, watch The Wizard of Oz, the plot twist was Toto going behind the curtain, and there's the wizard. He's not really a wizard. He's a man in a balloon from Kansas. And the problem there is 
that that's just a plot twist. It doesn't reveal the truth, so what ends up happening? The wizard leaves, and the truth that's revealed is that Dorothy could go home at any point by clicking her red shoes. Plot twist reveals the actual truth. Plot twist of Star Wars. Luke, I am your father. Whoa, I didn't see that coming. He's the father. Plot twist. That's not the truth that's revealed. The revealed truth is that Darth Vader is actually the hero of Star Wars, and he is the one who defeats the Emperor. Plot twists point to a reveal. They don't point to themselves. So what does the plot twist in the story of Deborah point to? Well, let's jump back into the book of Judges. Judges chapter 4 again. Verse 23. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. You see, it is in these verses that we get the ultimate reveal. The plot twist leads to the ultimate reveal. Who's the hero of the story? Who's the hero of the story? Is it Deborah? I mean, she is the judge after all. She's the prophet. She's the mouthpiece of God. Maybe it's Barak. He actually does go into battle, and what he does is he defeats a mighty foe. 900 chariots at that, was, uh, at that time was this uh, military technological advancement. This is a superpower military. This is something that is feared. Those chariots can just go through uh, uh, thousands of warriors and cut them through like a knife going through butter. Is it Barak, the victorious general? Maybe it's Jael. Maybe it's Jael who, who actually defeats and kills Sisera. Is she the hero of the story? Which one of those three is the hero? None of them. None of them are the hero. They just happen to be able to do heroic actions according to a divine agenda. The hero in the story is God. He's the deliverer. And you can say to me, yeah, you're supposed to say that. You're the preacher. That's what you say. And I will do my best justice impression. I can see on your face. Now, you are someone who likes a bargain, so I'm going to give you a buy one, get one free. It says so right there in the verse, verse 23 and 24, that God is the one who delivered them. But if you don't believe that, if you want a little bit more proof, I'm ready to give you more proof. Because I told you that Barak was mentioned again in the Bible outside of this story. And I told you it was in the book of Hebrews. He's also mentioned in 1 Samuel. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 12. This is a farewell speech by Samuel. Now then, stand here, because I'm going to confront you with the evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, then they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. So he sold them into the hands of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned. We have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherahs. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerubbaal, who's Gideon, who we studied a little bit before, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. Who is the deliverer? God is the deliverer. The hero is God. The ultimate reveal is that this story isn't about Deborah. 
It isn't about Deborah, Deborah delivering Israel. It's not about Barak delivering Israel. It's not about Jael delivering Israel. It's about God delivering his people. It's about God's deliverance. And here's where the credits would begin to roll up. And here's where we would begin to see the credits go up on this story. And here's where we would have to wait for the end credit scene. Because I told you that all these stories point to a greater story. I told you that all these stories point to the greater story of the hero of heroes, Jesus. How does that happen in the story of Deborah? How does this point to a bigger story? Let me see. We have a ridiculous negotiation, followed by an unexpected plot twist that leads to the ultimate reveal. Kind of sounds like the gospel to me. You see, what you need to understand is that because of our sin, we enter into the story, all of us, all of humanity, condemned. And we are condemned because of our sins to a very real consequence, to a very real place called hell, where there's very real suffering, an eternal separation from God. And our response throughout history has been the same. We enter into a ridiculous negotiation. And here's how it goes. If I can just be good enough, then God will let me into heaven. We have this negotiation with God and say, like, I know that I've sinned, God, but have you seen all of these things I've done? Have you seen the amount of times I've gone to church? Have you seen the amount of times that I've given to the church? Have you seen the amount of times that I was actually nice to my in-laws? That was hard to do, God. Have you seen this? I'm good enough, aren't I? We enter into this ridiculous negotiation. But the problem with that negotiation is that we are not on the same level as God. We have no authority to negotiate with him. The only one who can satisfy the payment of our sin, the only one who can take us and give us the opportunity to not have this consequence of hell and bring us salvation is God himself. And so what does God do in the story? He gives us an unexpected plot twist. He promises throughout the whole Old Testament that he will provide a way, that he will provide a savior. And then the unexpected plot twist is this. The foretold king, the king that they were looking for, is born in a lowly manger. The conquering savior is nailed to a cross and dies. The defeated and dead picture of hope comes to life again. And on the third day, walks out of that tomb alive and eternally victorious. The unexpected plot twist, which leads to the ultimate reveal. That Jesus is the hero of heroes. That he is the king of kings. That he is the Lord of lords. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. So what do we do with all of that? What's the application for today? What's the point? What are we supposed to do with all of this that we've got today? Well, that's where Judges 5 comes in. Remember I told you that Judges 4 and Judges 5 told the story of Deborah. They just told it in a different genre. Judges 4, which we just read, was the prose account. It told us the events of it. And what does the prose account do? It invites us to experience the events of the story. Judges 5 is the poetic account. It's the song. And what does it tell us to do? It invites us to experience the emotions of the story. You see, at some point, at some point 
it has to move from here to here. At some point, it has to move from here to here. At some point, you can't just know the truth of the gospel. You have to experience the gospel. At some point, it's not good enough just to know about Jesus. You need to know Jesus. That's what we need to do with this. At some point, that move has to be done. And it is clear, it is clear in the Bible, it is crystal clear that all of humanity, all of us have a choice when it comes to Jesus. You either accept him or you reject him. There's no in-between. You accept him or you reject him. In order to experience the gospel, you have to accept him. And the Bible is pretty clear about how that occurs. It says so in the book of Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. That's the end of it. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. That we don't have to add anything else to it. It's not about if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and go to church a certain amount of times and give this a much amount of offering and are nice to your in-laws. It's none of that. It is Jesus. That is the answer. That is the power of the gospel. That is the power of the gospel. You don't need to add anything to this. So what do we do with this today? Well, I invite you to experience the gospel. I invite you to experience the gospel. In a moment, we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing another song. And as you're there, I invite you to spend some time talking to God. If you've never accepted Jesus, if you've never experienced the gospel, today is the day that you should do that. It's as simple as whispering a prayer. Just saying to Jesus, I choose you. I'm a mess. I've screwed up. I'm a sinner. And there's nothing I can do about it. It is only you, Jesus, that is an answer. I choose to follow you. That's it. The answer is Jesus. So I invite you to take the time and do not leave here until you wrestle with God on that. But if you've already done that, if you've already chosen Jesus, then I invite you to experience the gospel today and be refreshed by the gospel. The truth of the matter is, is that life sometimes is hard. Sometimes there's sickness that comes in the way. Sometimes there are hardships that come in the way. The power and beauty of the gospel carries us through the good times, the bad times, and the in-between. So I invite you to celebrate and experience the gospel afresh today. Deborah has a ridiculous negotiation, an unexpected plot twist, and then ultimately a beautiful reveal. The gospel starts with us far away from God in a ridiculous negotiation. God does his unexpected plot twist and sends Jesus in a shocking and scandalous way, which leads to the beautiful reveal of Jesus, the hero of heroes, our Savior. Let the gospel impact your life today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the beauty and the power of the gospel. We thank you for who you are. Lord, I ask you that you would stir in our hearts today.
that you would begin to just talk to us today as, as we spend these final moments together in this service. That if there is anyone in this room who has not made a decision to follow Jesus, that you would begin to just tug at their hearts and that today would be the day. That if there's anyone in this room who has chosen to follow Jesus but just needs a reminder of that beauty and impact of the gospel, that you would make it so real today that you would ignite in us a passion for Jesus. Lord, bless this people. Make yourself known to them today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.